Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I have it on good authority that Molly Reynolds, that this is not just her first time on the podcast. This is her first time listening to the podcast. That is, uh, so I should say that it's my first time purposefully listening to the podcast. I did have the distinct pleasure of working next door to the Jungle Studio for quite some time. So in like my subconscious, I certainly listened to the recording of many, many episodes of Rational Security. But this is uh, this is my my first time on. It's like when you, you know, you learn French by putting the book under your pillow. You you, you have a subconscious knowledge of Rational Security. It is it is very similar to very similar to that. It's like learning French with somebody scream it to you from across the room <laughs> of Ben, and, ben, and, ben and Woodis's t- office. Tammy <laughs> laughing really loudly in French at you. Yeah, all of these similarities. This is, this is what it was like to work next door to the combination Ben Woodis office, Jungle Studio um, for several years. The OG Jungle Studio, which That's truly true. was jungle-like. Uh, yeah, we, the- used to, we used to joke that the, the jungle elements of the Jungle Studio were going to get so aggressive that they were going to like bust through the wall kool-aid man style into my office and i would just arrive one day to find that my office had been overtaken by plants instead we just took over the fourth floor (laughs) which is basically second best option hello everyone and welcome to rational security 2.0 too rational too secure i am sitting here today in the virtual jungle studio with my friends quinta jurassic hello and alan rosenstein Hi, everyone. And today we are rounding out the Lawfare Senior Editor Quartet by bringing in our fourth amigo, uh, the D'Artagnan to our musketeers, Lawfare Senior Editor and Brookings Senior Fellow, Molly Reynolds. Molly, thank you for joining us here today. Uh, It's great to be here. Um, Thanks for having me. Uh, It is one of the we're entering into that busy period in Brookings world uh, as we round the bend out of our lazy summers into September. Uh, how has this month been treating you all? Are you all feeling ready to re-enter the uh, true pace of the world not instead of the the nice lazy summer we've been enjoying? Well, it's still ninety degrees in DC. So as far as I'm concerned, until it cools down to at least eighty five, I'm still counting it as summer. <laughs> Yeah, we don't have that problem in Minnesota. It's a it's a nice crisp sixty seven. Don't right rub here. it in. Ooh, well, yeah, I'm except jealous. when it starts snowing the week before Halloween, it'll you know that that'll be my that'll be the price to pay for this nice late summer, early fall weather we're having. Well, I will say if climate change ends up with us extending the nice lazy summers that tend to exist in D.C., I will be very excited about it. Getting a couple extra weeks of a little slower pace before getting back into it uh, seems like a fair trade to me. This is the Is Everybody Wrong edition of Rational Security. And we are here today. We'll be talking about 
three topics. The first, the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, which took place this past weekend, and whether it's true that we really have done everything wrong since then, as appears to be the emerging conventional wisdom. Second, the investigation into the tragic what was originally self-described as a righteous airstrike that the Biden administration pursued in Kabul during evacuation efforts intended to stop a vehicle-borne explosive device, but now appears to have killed instead a U.S. aid worker and much of his family. What this tells us about the use of drones in the United States and what it should mean for the future of the United States' use of drones overseas. And finally, we're going to talk about the forthcoming Justice for J6 rally happening here in Washington, D.C. this coming weekend and what the reemergence of fences around the Capitol building says about the state of our democracy moving forward. With that, Quinta, let me turn it to you over to you for our first topic. Sure. So as you said, uh, we saw the 20th anniversary of 9-11 this past weekend, and along with it, there was a pretty substantial uh, 9-11 anniversary content production machine. There were uh, essays looking back, there were podcasts, there were photographs, um, some of which were, were quite moving. But I was really struck by the tone in a lot of the remembrances and sort of reconsiderations of the last 20 years, that there really seems to be a strong consensus um, that I don't think I've ever seen before among sort of both journalists and policymakers in Washington, D.C., that the U.S. response to 9-11 over the last 20 years, starting with the passage of the 2001 AOMF and continuing from there, has more or less all been a series of giant mistakes. Um, There's some disagreement around the edges about, you know, what were mistakes and what might have been, you know, decisions that policymakers still defend. But overall, the mood is really one of sort of self-reflection, looking back, saying we really messed up here, which I think was maybe best encapsulated by a piece by Gary Graff um, in The Atlantic, where the headline is, after 9-11, the U.S. got almost everything wrong. So I think that, you know, there have been a lot of 9-11 remembrances. I thought that what we might be able to add to the table is sort of considering that discourse and whether it's right. Like, did we get everything wrong? I think there are two useful kind of conceptual clarifications that we can make to kind of tighten up the question. So one is, did we make mistakes versus were the outcomes bad? So this is always, I think, really important to ask when you're doing Monday Monday morning quarterbacking. Right. Um, You know, is it that the decision that we took led to bad outcomes? That's one thing. That's usually an easier question to answer versus given what we knew at the time, given what was a reasonable decision, did we make a reasonable decision? Because, you know, just because something ended badly doesn't mean it was the wrong thing to do. And just because something ended well doesn't mean it was the right thing to do. So I think that's one useful thing to keep in mind. Um, You know, the other is um, who are we talking about? Who is this we? that we're trying to ascribe responsibility to. Um, so I think one thing that the, the author of the piece, Quinta, that you mentioned does kind of at the top of the piece, um, um, which I think was useful, was to say, look, there's a, a US government element to this and then there's a US public element to this. So it's one thing to say, you know, the US government made some decisions and those decisions were mistakes based on the goals that the public wanted, right? The, public wanted peace, the public wanted vengeance, the public wanted whatever it wanted, and then the job of the government was to go and implement that. And then there were certain mistakes that we can talk about. 
But then there's the second question, which I think is the deeper and think fundamentally more important question is, did the public itself make a mistake, right? You know, should we have expected the public after 9-11 to say, you know, a terrible thing has happened, a terrible crime has been committed. We are going to investigate the crime. We'll bring the perpetrators to justice, but we will treat it in a particular way rather than this thing called radical Islam, this thing called global terrorism, this thing called the axis of evil has declared war on us in some existential way. And therefore the response has to be a total mobilization as we've seen in prior global conflicts. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we live in a democracy. And so we sort of do get fundamentally the responses, the policy responses we deserve. And so I think it's really important to, to kind of ask, not just did the government make mistakes, but did the people make mistakes? And is it reasonable to expect people in the wake of this kind of national tragedy to be self-reflective enough to draw a fairly limited response? So I, I think that's a useful tool to some extent, right? Um, but there's also, I, I think inevitably these reflections have to kind of focus on the policy element. There is this kind of cultural element about how we respond to the 9-11 attacks. It's worth being critical about. Um, but there's a strong element here where the relationship between kind of elite policy views and popular views, popular opinion is a really complex one. It's, it's not so easy as saying, you know, democratic acceptance of a particular type of response leads to a policy outcome or vice versa. And there were a lot of elite decisions made after the 9-11 attacks that really shaped a lot of fundamental policy decisions and to some extent drove public opinion. You think about the pretty widespread popular fervor in the lead up to the invasion of Iraq being a prime example of that, um, where executive officials kind of primed the pump to say, hey, let's get the public re revved up around a particular perception of reality and responding to it. Um, so there's criticism on both sides. I want to focus on, on those policy decisions for this one for this one angle of it, this one aspect of it, which is that I really don't like the broad narrative. I think it's a problematic one to say, did we do everything wrong? Because it's just a bad frame. It's one that you get for this historical moment. You get it also as a headline, as something that's attention grabbing. Um, and in this moment, I think a lot of people are feeling particularly pessimistic because of the way things have played out in Afghanistan over the last few weeks, uh, where it looks like we are very much in the state of affairs that persisted prior to the 9-11 attacks, at least in a lot of regards, and therefore really have not gained anything, although I'm not sure that's entirely accurate. Um, but I do think that we need to disaggregate this idea and really look very specifically at particular policy decisions. Um, there are certain things that I think lots of people accept and will accept and should accept as major policy mistakes. Going to war in Iraq is probably one of the biggest ones. The aggressive uh, capturing of terrorism suspects and bringing them to black sites and ultimately bringing them to military commissions at Guantanamo Bay or now being put toward the military commissions to be detained at Guantanamo Bay, I think is another major one that we are still wrestling with the very, very hard to deal with consequences of it legally and policy-wise 20 years later without any clear way out. Those are big, big mistakes. But there are other ones where it's really hard to assess kind of counterfactually what the alternative would have been uh, or to weigh the actual effectiveness of a decision. I think the reorganizing DHS is a prime example of that. DHS is like a highly dysfunctional agency. I think most people agree with that. But it's hard to know how much more functional the pre-existing institutional arrangement where a lot of agency interests that did overlap, did intersect, and were reliant on each other were spread across a number of agencies as well. Um, I think the long and short of it is it's like we really need to look at these policy decisions in their details and as individual entities 
as a, and fight the kind of cultural instinct to say this whole era was an era of mistakes. We need to start rejecting that. And I worry too much of the popular and political discourse, and particularly some of the elite discourse, which, which I, again, I think is really problematic, is pushing too far in that latter direction in my mind, um, basically trying to paint decisions made in this era as a problem inherently, as opposed to digging into details and actually evaluating them uh, on their merits and, and on their often very real problems um, in the fact-specific context in which they're actually made. Yeah, so Scott, you brought up this notion for a sort of specific example of um, like reorganizing uh, DHS and the, the counterfactual of, you know, what would the world have looked like if we hadn't reorganized those disparate parts of the federal government um, into um, into one federal agency. Um, and I think there's there's infinite counterfactuals, but another counterfactual is like, what if we had reorganized DHS in the way that we did, but then also sort of finished the reorganization? And also, obviously, like my mind is always on on Congress for better or probably for worse. Um, but not better uh, for your sanity, for all of our benefit, <laughs> but not for yours. Yeah. Um, but so when uh, there was the reorganization that brought the old INS and the Coast Guard and FEMA together um, under DHS, what that was not accompanied by was a reorganization of Congress's capacity uh, to oversee all of those elements of the federal government into something. Uh, so, you know, Congress created new Homeland Security committees that were meant to be the DHS um, uh, oversight bodies, but then also left jurisdiction for a number of those other components in their previous congressional committees, which is basically the most dysfunctional way you could do something that's already not terribly functional in um, in the U.S. Congress. So I think I, I just point this out to say that, you know, there is, there are so many different, your question of counterfactuals, like what is the counterfactual? There's so many different ones that we could contemplate. Um, and and this is, um, this is just one of them. The other thing I'd say that's actually shockingly not related to the U.S. Congress is that this question of and sort of this frame around like have we gotten um, almost everything wrong? I think it's um it's a challenging frame. Um, so you know, listeners may not know how old the four of us are, but the four of us in particular, specifically in this conversation, like we basically have only have come of age in public life um, in the post 9-11 era. And I find myself um, kind of reflecting on what does that mean for how I evaluate what has happened since September 11th? That is my only sort of frame of reference for thinking about was a policy, was a choice the right one or the wrong one? Was it the outcome, good or bad, to go back to Alan's frame? And I, um, that I, it, it is something I have found myself thinking a lot about as I've reflected on this sort of this macro question. I've been thinking the same thing, Molly, just, you know, the struggle of reflecting on 9-11 without really having a comparison of what things looked like before makes it really, really difficult. Um, but I wanted to to just build more on the point that we've all really been making that it doesn't really make sense to say, what did we get wrong when we is a vast constellation of different people and and different institutions. It does feel to me like there's a little bit of reading everything through the Trump administration, you know, looking back through um, not rose, whatever the opposite of rose colored glasses are. Um which is, I don't necessarily think is wrong, but you know, if you were thinking, so let's take DHS as an example. Um, 
the problems of arranging DHS in the way it was arranged became apparent almost immediately uh, with Katrina and all sorts of failures of management and oversight. But if you were going to say to yourself, okay, we've created this massive institution that is made up of different pieces from all sorts of different departments, there's no coherent culture, we're recruiting from the people who couldn't get into other law enforcement programs like the FBI, we you know, we don't have stable leadership, um, what is the worst thing that could happen? I would argue that... Uh, authoritarian president who comes in and uses this Department of Homeland Security as his personal police force, you know, sort of strong arming the lack of congressional oversight in order to put in place leadership that hasn't been confirmed by the Senate um, is a pretty good example of what a red team of that situation can look like. So, you know, if Hillary Clinton had won in 2016, we would have had a very different past five years, obviously. And I imagine we would still be reflecting on, you know, U.S. failures after 9-11. But I, I do think that the sort of the bleakness of our reflections is in part because we had someone in the presidency who was partly able to take office because of some of the worst cultural tendencies that cropped up after 9-11 and was willing to use some of the tools that were kind of left on the table from previous administrations that were put in place after 9-11. So everyone who's angry at DHS, just just tweet at Quinta. That's that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's you all should do after this. Sorry. Uh, after you hear this. Um, yeah, so it's, it's interesting. I, I, I think I disagree with you because, I mean, you know why are we why are we looking at everything through mud colored glasses? I think I think mud colored is, is maybe the opposite of rose colored glasses. Um, uh, I, in this, you know, why we're all grumpy is pretty overdetermined right now, right? I mean, you have Trump, you have COVID, which raises real questions about basic state capacity in the United States. You have Afghanistan. We'll talk about that in a bit. Um, but I actually think that the looking thinking about the thinking about the, the Trump administration here is actually really useful in, in the following way. So, you know, this question, I think this is to Scott's point about what the counterfactual is, is really, really important. Um, and I think one way that we can get a handle on what the counterfactual is, is to look at what has been pretty consistent through the Bush administration, the Obama administration, and then the Trump administration, and, and now the Biden administration, right? And I think what we see is, is kind of two things. Um, one, a increased focus on security at home, and the second is, I don't, I don't want to single out drone strikes as a particular tool, and we'll talk about that in a second, but, you know, the engaging in a um, forever low intensity war. Let's talk about, let, let's think of it that way, right? You know, I think you can imagine a world, you can easily imagine a world in which we either invaded Afghanistan very differently or certainly did not invade Iraq, right? You can certainly imagine a world in which we did not, you know, piss off all our allies in the process. Um, but I actually don't think you can imagine a world, and, and maybe this is where the kind of article that is starting, you know, that, that we're all reacting to, I think gets it a little wrong. I don't think you can imagine a world in which there wasn't a huge reorganization that put security um, uh, first in um, the American bureaucracy. Now, whether or not you had to securitize immigration is kind of a different thing. But, you know, a lot of these people came in on visas and there, there was something there um, at the time. And again, I, and I don't think you can imagine a world in which we didn't take some sort of action um, to fight terrorism abroad, right? And that action would have been quite violent, um, even if it was far short of um, invading a country. And and the fact that you're seeing both of these dynamics kind of continue in a pretty unbroken line from, from Bush up through today is to me um, the limit of the we got everything wrong after 9-11, right? Now, what we did get wrong was the war in Iraq, 
right? And, and I, I think that is the main thing we got wrong. And that thing had such disastrous consequences, fiscally, geopolitically, that, you know, that can overshadow, can potentially overshadow everything else. But I personally am okay with us over-rotating on that a little bit, right? Um, if, if, if we take that lesson a little too far, I think that might be okay, just given how catastrophic that particular decision uh, was. I, I will say I don't I don't disagree with that, particularly in regards to Iraq necessarily, or certain of the other. I think military commission slash detention. I feel similarly about like that was a catastrophic, decades long problem. Um, that it may be better just to give some solid fencing to stay further away from that than maybe you absolutely have to in the future. The one thing I'll say, I think this gets back to my instinct. It actually is an interesting parallel here is the thing that makes me nervous is that we hit these historical moments where in the popular consciousness driven by elite opinions, driven by media opinions, we see it as an, you know, the end of an epoch, beginning of a new epoch. And there can be this impetus for broad ranging change. And it's often driven by a rejection of the prior status quo. That's actually what happened after 9-11, right? A lot of these reforms after 9-11 were particularly the Bush administration saying, we need to do things totally different than we did in the 90s. And did they actually do it totally different? No, there was some continuity, actually some surprising continuity in a lot of ways. But that was the narrative, that was the drive, and they were able to delegitimate so much of what happened before 9-11 because of the problem that 9-11 posed. And I'm worried we're hitting a similar moment here where people are trying to delegitimate so much of what's been done after the last 20 years. And like the decisions after 20, 9-11, I think that can lead to a lot of unintended and bad conse consequences where people aren't fully embracing the actual specific context which these decisions have to be made and weighing them on their individualized merits. I think it's just me being maybe a Berkey and small C conservative, right? Uh, I, I just makes me nervous to jump into whole changes and the narratives that justify that um, make that's what we're beginning to see in I think in pieces like this and particularly in the headline of this piece which is always is a little more dramatic than the actual piece but, but um, writers do don't write their headlines folks I that's true that that is the one caveat of this so I blame the Atlantic I suppose so Quinta you can pass that along to them <laughs> but, but Scott do you do you have an example of what you're concerned about so so the reason I ask is like you know th there is one very famous example of this in world history right which is World War one to World War two right so World War one is a disastrous destructive, completely pointless, totally unnecessary war, right? Um, that leads to, in England in particular, you know, two decades of um, kind of isolationist sentiment. And um, one can argue, right, is the reason for Chamberlain and selling out the Czechs and Munich and kind of all of that, right? And so clearly, in some sense, the Brits and also the Americans, the, you know, the, the, the allied nations overlearned the lesson of World War I, and that may be part of what caused World War II, right, and allowed that to occur. Um, and so the question here is like, you know, one can imagine a world in which we've over-rotated on this lesson and therefore something, right? Therefore we make a mistake the next time. And I'm just curious, you know, do you have something like that in mind? I mean, we're now just like totally speculating on the future, but I'm sort of curious where your discomfort is coming from if you have something like this in mind. Yeah, I mean, I think the the clearest example is, you know, Afghanistan potentially. I actually don't buy this. I actually supported withdrawal in concept with a lot of caveats and reservations about it, and particularly about the way it was executed. But I see the strategic logic behind it. But there is a real possibility here that Afghanistan is being returned to a state where it's a could become a haven for international terrorism. Um, and that will happen if the Biden administration's promised over the horizon strategy doesn't work. Uh, and if, um, you know, 
in part because the Biden administration has a different view of geostrategic interests of the United States. It no longer puts terrorism as high as great power competition with China and Russia. And it doesn't see Afghan terrorism particularly as or terrorism in Afghanistan as particularly a problem. Right. Um, I think embracing that, accepting that, and some of the narrative we talked about in prior episodes of this show and other contexts uh, around uh, how people are justifying the Afghanistan withdrawal kind of feed into that a little bit. You know, you're saying like, oh, we got to overreact Afghanistan. It was a huge mistake. Get out, get out, get out. Um, in the same way, we can say, no, global global war against terrorism, using drones, using special force, everything, get out, get out, get out, stop all of that. I, I'm not sure that's the right answer. I wholeheartedly agree. I think we've probably done way too much of that and spread ourselves too thin in that regard uh, or been too aggressive in that regard. But I'm not sure the opposite pendulum swing is the right answer either. And we've got to start thinking about policy as something other than pendulum swings or reactions to the last stage. But unfortunately, that's just the way our political and media dialogues tend to break it down. And it actually can really, really shape how policy is approached, particularly around um, these issue sets. So, Scott, um, you've, you've given us a nice segue into our second topic, which is Afghanistan. And it is the. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The drone strike that the United States carried out, as you mentioned at the top of the show in, in late August, and the, 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 the sort of sad reality that, um, at least according to the reporting so far, that there are a ton of facts we don't yet know, and I'm sure there will be a lot more facts that come out. Um, you know, instead of striking a terrorist, the U.S. government struck an Afghan civilian and killed a bunch of his family and kind of another entry into the kind of long list, unfortunately, of, of drone strike casualties and, and drone strike mistakes. Right. So there, there's the question about this particular drone strike. But I think there's the bigger question about what this says about the future of U.S. counterterrorism policy, whether in Afghanistan or in other areas where there is terrorism and terrorist activity, but the U.S. for obvious reason doesn't want to do any sort of big land invasion or occupation. Um, I mean, are we back to the kind of battle days, as it were, of this being the main way that the U.S. engages with terrorism around the world? And have we learned anything from 20 years of drone strikes? I mean, this this strikes me as kind of the kind of perfect example of the horror of Nietzsche's you know eternal return, right? We're just doing this. We're writing the same story about drone strikes over and over and over again. Um, but it doesn't strike me as obvious what the better answer is. Um, so does anyone, does anyone, uh, can, can anyone help me out of this conundrum? First off, I just want to say thank you for invoking eternal return. Excellent philosophy shout out. Thank you. Um, I, I had a lot of the same qualms reading the really incredible New York Times reporting. Um, I think definitely recommend that listeners take a look at it and watch the video if they don't already or if they haven't seen it um, already. In part just because I think it, for me, 
raised a question about to what extent the American public is going to care about continued operations of this sort. Um, I mean, one of the big arguments about targeted killings and, and drone operations over the last 15 years has really been that because there aren't American boots on the ground in many of these cases, it's sort of easier for the public to not pay as much attention, for Congress to not pay as much attention, um, for everybody to just kind of check out and let the executive more or less do its thing. And that can be a problem when its thing involves a lot more civilian casualties than the executive is initially admitting. There's an incredible quote from early on in the Obama administration where uh, one of Obama's advisors said there were no civilian casualties from drone strikes, which turned out to be extremely untrue. Um, And so this airstrike in Kabul got a lot of attention because uh, American media was covering the withdrawal very closely. But I do wonder, you know, as we, I think, mentioned earlier, Biden has said that he plans to potentially continue what he called over-the-horizon operations in Afghanistan. And so if we do end up continuing drone strikes in Afghanistan as a kind of replacement for having boots on the ground, are people going to pay attention or care? I mean, Molly, I'm curious for your perspective on Congress. I think there's a really important distinction here between what does the American public pay attention to? And I actually suppose there are three questions. There's what does the American public pay attention to? There's what does Congress pay attention to? And then there's what what should Congress be paying attention to? Um, And I think that you're absolutely right that um, to like when we are not talking about you know, actual American troops overseas in Afghanistan um, in and as a result, um, you know, not talking about um, troop casualties um, in Afghanistan. It's, it is much easier for the American public um, to kind of just not pay attention to what's happening, especially if Congress is not talking about what's happening. So one of the things we know about sort of public opinion on foreign policy in particular is that it follows sort of elite messaging. And so it matters a lot what members of Congress are talking about. If members of Congress are choosing just not to engage at the same level with um, the conduct of military operations because they involve drones and not... um, young American men and women going overseas. I think that like it's it's a little bit of a uh, sort of reinforcing circle. Like the American public is not going to pay attention if Congress is not telling them to pay attention. Um, and to the broader question of like, has Congress been paying attention to this? One of the other, to go back to our previous um, conversation about 9-11, one of the other big lessons, and I wrote about this recently in a piece with our Brookings colleague, Sarah Binder, um, one of the big lessons from... Uh, the post 9-11 era in Congress is that Congress is really willing to just let the executive branch do uh, not entirely what it wants, but largely what it wants, because Congress does not want to bear the political costs of pushing back against the executive branch. And they are they are and they don't want to be seen as doing things that are politically unpopular. And they are happy to let 
the president make the hard decisions, even if that means abdicating a lot of their own authority in the space. Obviously, Scott is our resident um, uh, congressional um, uh, war powers, foreign po- conduct of foreign policy expert here. But it just like that's another lesson of the last 20 years that Congress is happy to let um, and has been happy to let the executive branch really push the bounds of the AUMFs and the, um, the, the powers the executive branch has because Congress just does not want its hands on those decisions. So I, I definitely want to hear Scott's views on, on the AOMF and, and congressional authorization side of it. But I do have a follow up for you, Molly, which is how do you think that the partisan dynamics play out here? I mean, the, the fact that it is Biden, it is a Democrat in the White House with a Democratic controlled Congress for now. Um, does that does that make it easier than, let's say, it would have been if this had been Trump or a Republican in the White House. And, and the reason I ask is that, you know, it seems to me easier that, that, in what way? Well, it is it easier for Congress to abdicate whatever responsibilities it, it has, because, you know, you have you have Republicans who tend to be more kind of hawkish in general, though. I don't know, the last 20 years has sort of complicated that. Um, you have Republicans who tend to be more hawkish and therefore might, on the merits, not want to probe too deeply into things like civilian casualties. And then you have Democrats who, of course, want to support their president who's in the White House. Yeah. So I actually think that um, one of the things that we have seen over the – so certainly over like a longer sweep of history, um, when – a Chamber of Congress is controlled by the same party as the president. They do less aggressive oversight of the executive branch. Um, but one of the things that I think we've seen in the in terms of the conduct of military operations abroad in the post 9-11 era is that both parties have been quite willing to like have this, to let the executive branch kind of do, do what it wants. Um, and in some cases, that's when we have seen a... Uh, a chamber of Congress controlled by the opposite party from the president, and they have tried to do more aggressive oversight. That's then when we have seen them get stonewalled by the executive branch, not wanting to cooperate with that oversight. I do think, um, so, you know, talking about a little bit about what um, has happened in the past couple of days with the first several hearings that um, administration of officials have appeared at about the um, withdrawal from Afghanistan. You saw particularly um, in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, um, uh, um, uh, Bob Menendez, who's the, the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, Democrat from New Jersey, be like quite um, uh, really sort of start to push back a lot against the um the Biden administration and there's a there's some sort of interesting history about kind of Menendez's own foreign policy views and what Blinken was a part of in the Obama administration about Iran and Cuba and all that kind of stuff um, that is probably part of this story but I do think that um certainly if Democrats in Congress want to really kind of buck historical trends and dig into conduct of a same party president, um, they like they are well prepared to do that. The question is really, do they want to? And what happens? What kind of cooperation do they get from the executive branch when they try? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting set of questions about what Congress's role in this versus other folks. I This is a kind of a perennial conversation we've had, right, around drone policy, as Quinta mentioned, for most of the last 15 years. Um, and it's always heart-wrenching because you hear these horrible stories about these decisions that are made by the United States on faulty intelligence or inadequate application of standards um, or simply 
making a judgment call about a particular decision that um, a, a strike was worth it, recognizing there was a risk to civilians, um, and then uh, and then going to say, all right, well, we made this call. Is this right or not? Um, the thing I, I think is worth bearing in mind here is that like this does less to do with drones versus a, a actual U.S. policy about the use of force more generally. Drones are a tool. And people can disagree about the type of tool, but I, I tend to think there are people who argue like, oh, drones themselves are bad. And I tend to think that's a little bit of a short-sighted or, or argument. You know, it's kind of like blaming a hammer for bad carpentry. Um, drones allow the United States to do things differently. They get allow people to use lethal force at a long distance. So do cruise missiles, so do other things. That's not new in that regard. The thing that makes drones particularly different is that they allow them to gather, they allow the United States reference operating them to hang over an area and then actually gather a lot of information and wait for an opportune moment to take a lethal strike. Those are all good capabilities from the perspective of actually being able to do a strike that does minimize impact on civilians. Now, has that actually happened in terms of absolute numbers? No, but in part that's because we can use drones to push the envelope about the types of actions we're pursuing. We would never have done a cruise missile strike and could never have done a cruise missile strike against that car in Kabul. You can plausibly do a drone strike because while you may not have made the right decision in this case, there are other decisions where you said, look, we have five hours of footage. We have expert intelligence analysts who have looked at this, and this is the conclusion they draw. They made a call. Maybe it was the wrong call in this time, but it's the type of information that we often don't have in a lot of military circumstances in that regard. So I actually think drones are a good thing. Um, maybe you're somebody who likes or Sam Moyen, who's written an interesting book, Humane, Humane recently. Uh, Humane, excuse me. Sorry about that, Sam. Humane, uh, where you know, you're know you saying like, well, the, uh, this ability to have this more humane sort of action actually extends warfare and is a problematic in that regard. There's an argument there. You know, it's, it's a much bigger conversation to get into here. But if you buy the argument that it's a better to be able to, when you have to take military action to limit the impact on civilians, drones are actually better at that than a lot of other tools, right? What we object to is the fact that we're taking military actions in all these sorts of environments uh, and at a scale that it has negative political consequences, it hurts civilians. Um, and those are all consequences that are really hard to bear, but they're not unique to this stage of conflict, right? Or this stage of combat. Like maybe it's the contrast between the fact that several administrations have tried to sell this as a very humane type of warfare. We're only targeting civilians. You know, the Obama administration famously had a standard where outside of combat areas, so it was only supposed to take action where it was practically certain, I forget the exact verbiage, but practically certain there were not going to be civilian casualties, which, which almost certainly was always wrong because it's based upon assessments of unclear and incomplete facts. Um, you know, I think the long and short of this is, is that like we need to have a bigger debate about the scope of a military activity. The fact that this keeps getting tied to this specific tool set is just a weird feature of the way these issues tend to get covered and perceived by the public and by the media that I think is really unfortunate um, because it just forces people to or leads people to engage on a set of issues that are really tangential to the actual substantive ones that need to be debated, which is how we're actually using force of whatever stripe overseas. So, Scott, I have a question for you um, as a person who's thought probably more about the AUMFs uh, than most anyone. Um, we we how... prefer A's UMF. UMF, sorry. A's UMF. A's UMF. As someone who's thought about the A's UMF more, you. than, uh, more than most people, um, how does the fact that, and I'm, um, 
I appreciate your point about um, drones as a, as a tool and that sometimes we sort of think of them with a valence that we don't necessarily think of other tools with. But how does your point about sort of the the their use um, fit in with this broader debate about how far we've pushed the envelope on what Congress has actually authorized in terms of the conduct of military operations abroad. Um, we know that both A's UMF have been read very expansively over time. We know that the Biden administration um, and, and members of Congress are in favor of um, repealing one of them. So just how do those two pieces fit together? Because again, as a person who thinks, who comes at a lot of these questions from the perspective of kind of democratic accountability via the United States Congress, um, that strikes me, strikes, huh? drone strikes, strikes me as a kind of an important consideration here. No, I think that's absolutely right. And like, I think in essence, that's kind of the much more essential question here is the fact that we have a statute on the books that authorizes the president to use uh, what they consider to be necessary and appropriate force anywhere around the world against a fairly nebulous and expanded upon set of targets, expanded upon both by executive action and by kind of congressional tacit acquiescence in some people's views, including the executive branch. And the courts don't seem interested in pushing back on it, right? So everybody's waiting for Congress to take some sort of action to rein it in. Maybe they will, maybe they won't, but they haven't for the last 20 years. Um, you do have an element of this also, that's the Article II power, you know, the extent to which the president can use force without congressional authorization. Um, you know, that uh, there are drone instances of drone usage and deployments of drones overseas that are rooted in Article II, not in the AUMFs. Um, you know, that's a separate question, but there are mechanisms for monitoring that. There are some legal limits Congress has tried to impose, and Congress could impose much more legal limits if they want. I think that's, in a lot of ways, like the better debate and the more important debate to be had than any particular type of the use of force. Um, because, uh, you know, again, those are the real parameters here. Um, the, the civilian casualties we're seeing are because we're pushing the frontier of this conflict into all these new environments, all sorts of new countries, urban environments, other environments would, would be impossible to operate, um, you know, at, with a cruise missile, but you can do it perhaps with, or at, 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 without having massive civilian casualties, but you can perhaps with special forces troops, with uh, drone strikes. Um, and, and it, you know, you're, you're, the real question here is the political and legal tools governing U.S. policy as opposed to a particular, you know, tool or skill set. I guess I'm just, I'm trying to figure out if we've learned anything in 20 years about those two questions, right? I mean, it, it, it strikes me that there have always been kind of three main objections to, I'm going to call them drone strikes, but it's not about the drones, as Scott points out, it's just about this kind of sort of limited use of force, right? Limited, not in that it doesn't kill potentially lots of people, but limited in that it's short of a kind of a land invasion, right? You know, the one argument is, well, we should never be having forever wars, Right. And, you know, if you're still doing drone strikes 20 years later, something is wrong. Right. And I've always found that to be a pretty unpersuasive argument, because if the threat continues, then you have to continue dealing with the threat. Right. I mean, no one thinks that crime is going to end and therefore we can just get rid of all law enforcement. I mean, maybe some people do, but I, I don't think that's a very realistic view. Um, but then the other two arguments against drone strikes have always struck me as more more interesting and more important. Um, but I still don't feel like I'm any smarter about it now than I was 5, 10, 15 years ago, which is, you know, does it actually make us safer in the sense of does the number of terrorists that it kills, is that more than the number of terrorists it creates by radicalizing people 
Um, and then because it's, it's a tactical question. And then there's the moral question, which again, I don't think we've ever really squarely considered, um, which is, um, you know, a, a nation has a right to be safe, but it does not presumably have a right to be 100% safe if that marginal percentage point of safety comes at the cost of unspeakable civilian casualties, right? You know, part of being a civilized country is to accept that you will bear some risk of unsafety, right? Some risk of danger, uh, because the alternative is bombing everyone into oblivion. And you have to draw the line somewhere, right? And so there's an argument out there that says, look, even if drone strikes are effective, and lots of people dispute that, but even if they're effective, right, it's just not, it's just not acceptable, right? It's just not worth it um, in the global moral calculus. Now, I, I'm open to both of those objections to drone strikes or any other kind of targeted killing. Um, but I don't, I, I, I don't, what have we learned about it in the last 20 years, right? Or, or have we learned anything? Or does this, you know, and is there any reason to think, kind of back to how I opened this, this segment, is there any reason to think that we're in a position to be smarter about these two questions than we have previously been? I just want to chime in with one additional point. I think that all of those questions are are fair, Ellen, and I, I don't think that we're any closer to answering them, in part because we've sort of continued along on autopilot for so long. But one additional point, just to push back a little bit to Scott on your point about drones as a tool and a hammer, I think that you're you're mostly right about that. But I also, I don't know, I spent a long time thinking about this uh, when the conversation around drones scaled up uh, under the Obama administration. And my conclusion was that there is something about drones, like not other forms of targeted killing, drones particularly, that makes people really, really, really uneasy. People in the military, people in the Justice Department, uh, people just members of the public. And I do think that you can go too far in saying drones are totally new and there's never been anything like them. But I do think that that moral instinct, that sort of feeling of unease and even disgust is worth dwelling on and trying to think through where it's coming from and what it signifies because i think that i don't have an answer but i do wonder if we take if we took that more seriously whether that would help us um answer or at least give a little context to all the dynamics that alan was describing you know i will say i agree there is this sort of discomfort around it i think that's part of my gut reaction as to why i don't like this as a topic is because i think it's <laughs> irrational and nonsense um and it's like this kind of like luddite instinct where we don't like the technological changes that create make manifest war or whatever we're talking about in a really different way than we're used to conceiving it um, the, the audience should know that we dragged scott kicking and screaming into this into this topic i was not excited so about this topic. so so thank you scott for playing along <laughs> I, I mean it, it, it's an important conversation to have it's but it's one that's been around for a long while and I think just gets the wrong focus. It actually needs to be like three different conversations, I think is my key point. But the one thing I'll say here is with drones as a tool, I think there's actually a very good argument that ideally we would want more of them. If you look at actually some of the reporting around the drone program during the Obama administration, um, one of the big complaints that they had is that at the time, they had such limited drone resources in particular theaters that they would say, we would eventually have to take the shot in certain targets, even when we thought we could have waited for a more opportune moment because we had limited resources and we had to divert it for another purpose elsewhere. Uh, and this was a very real risk. You could see drones, drones playing like a super valuable role about ceasefire monitoring, right? Right now, people rely on like satellites to do ceasefire monitoring where you only have periodic passovers. That's 
even moderately sophisticated militaries know when it's happening. So it's pretty easy to avoid ceasefires. Drones would be much more effective at that, but they're expensive. They're hard to use. Um, the technology is just not there. We're going to keep seeing more sophisticated, more automated drones. And I actually think there's a lot of good that can come from that. So we need to fight that instinct to get over it. We need to talk about what's really wrong, which is the policies about how we use drones. And yeah, they facilitate certain policies more that might not be available otherwise. But in the end, we're a democracy. We make policy and we should focus on making better policy, not trying to bind our hands by taking away tools that might have more beneficial use in other contexts. The one thing I'll say, I think this gets to all your questions, um, Alan, and, uh, is that you're right. Like, There's a lot of learning that needs to still be done on this. And I think, again, it's on the policy front more than the, the tool front here. But the other thing we have to bear in mind, and this is part of the, I think, a little bit of a disconnect here. This really straight brings me back to a conversation I had with somebody at West Point a few years ago, um, who's like the head lawyer, JAG, essentially, for foreign military, who said essentially, but people don't understand is that the last 20 years of asymmetric warfare are a complete historical anomaly. Um, it is so rare and unusual for the United States or another major power to be engaged in war power, wars against overseas against non-armed groups. And it seems pretty unlikely we're going to do it again because it doesn't play to our strength. It's actually hard for us to accomplish. That's part of the reckoning that we're having now is that it's actually really, really hard to hide those sorts of wars, even for a major power. And instead, we're entering an area of peer conflict and that when you are actually engaging in anything like an actual armed conflict with a near peer, your ability to accommodate humanitarian considerations like this are massively less because the calculus in which the ability to, for instance, not kill civilians enters into weighs against military necessity. And your military necessity against a near peer or peer entity is always massively harder because you cannot take the risk that they will be the opportunity to hit you back the way you can with the terrorist group. You wait eight hours to hit a guy placing a roadside bomb. You can know where that bomb is. You can wait for an opportune moment. You can't do that when you know it's an enemy ship or an enemy plane. Um, so if we are really entering a peer-to-peer -peer era of great power, peer-to-peer -peer conflict, and it's actually a reality that might actually happen, we need to prepare ourselves for a much more bloody and inhumane form of warfare way beyond the thresholds that people are uncomfortable with now in the state of this current conflict. I find that an absolutely terrifying concept, but it's something that keeps kind of haunting me in, in these sorts of conversations. And I have to say, I, I find it a little persuasive on a intellectual front as horrifying as I find it on a personal front. And with that, let's go to our most lighthearted of our three topics, and that is the January 6th insurrection. Uh, <laughs> or... Not necessarily actually the January 6th insurrection. Uh, instead, I want to talk a little bit with you guys about the it is little sibling uh, that is headed to Washington, D.C. this weekend. That is the Justice for J6 rally um, that is happening here this weekend. Before we get into our topic, the one thing I have to say is that if no UCB online comedian or somebody else has remixed Nicki Minaj like a G6 to like on J6 yet, as a, as to mock this ridiculous, ridiculous rally. I really hope it happens by Saturday. I'll be really angry if it doesn't. Um, Guys, you, you may not, not want to be mentioning Nicki Minaj on this podcast. Yeah. Scott. Honestly, like the, the, uh, you know, Venn diagram of Nicki Minaj and J6 is getting closer by the day. So I think people should really get on this. Uh, you're missing your moment. Comedian. Oh, is please. there something that I don't know about Nicki Minaj? You're, how, we can't go into it no. here, but okay, yes, okay. I will Google text, it. We'll Backing text away, you later. I'm, we'll I'm text you later. Backpedaling quickly. Um, that said, 
what we're seeing this weekend for Live in D.C. is kind of a return to what I've kind of thought of as our year of living dangerously between the last two summers, where D.C. seemed to be under a kind of constant array of really exceptional security measures. I say that as somebody who grew up in the city and and has seen a lot of weird stuff happen in D.C., and it's been the weirdest year I can remember on record. Um, and the latest incident of the weirdness is the fact that fences are going back up all around the Capitol building, in, along with other measures like surveillance cameras. Uh, there's been some talk of drones potentially playing playing a role in different security procedures in the city in preparation for this rally on the concern that they're going to do something like happen with January 6th marching on the Capitol building. Um, I want to turn to you, Molly, and I want to ask you about this because it strikes me that this is like a big problem both for the city and for Congress uh, particularly, although I guess it's for other executive agencies too, because you got this the idea that We've always had access to the Capitol building. For those who haven't been to D.C., you know, you can kind of walk up to the Capitol building pretty readily most days, or at least before January 6th, you could. You can't go in without going through a metal detector, but a lot more accessible than a lot of other federal spaces. Um, and that was always seen as kind of like a, a symbol of democracy, the fact that it is, you know, the house of the people. Uh, I think technically, I guess that's the White House, but it's the house the house of the legislature, of the elected branch of, pe- of people. Um and now that's gone away or is beginning to go away in these intervals. And then applying these intervals where we have heightened security seems really dodgy to me because, yeah, now it seems very clear there's a nexus to this January 6th group. You seem like you have an argument there. Although I don't know if there's any actual intel suggesting that there is an intent to march on the Capitol, even like there was on January 6th. I, media reporting I've seen suggests there isn't, although I'm, who knows what's actually you know before the government people. But then... Who were the people making those calls? What if there is a political valence? Because it's all about First Amendment protected speech substantially in a lot of regards. You know, are we going to see Republican majority in Congress, Republican city government? That's probably never going to happen in Washington, D.C., but it could, I guess, in theory, a Republican executive branch in the future try and install similar security measures for, you know, uh, rallies against gun control or about other progressive issues on the logic of that there'll be an Antifa presence, Antifa presence, right? Like, how do you actually reconcile these sorts of security and policy concerns? And how is Congress dealing with it right now? Uh, the answer to the second question is not well, um, just in that. Uh, so you're absolutely right that there is this, there's they're both like big operational questions about what is the appropriate level of physical security for the U.S. Capitol complex and not to sort of like keep returning to where we started this conversation. But I actually think there's a pretty strong through line that you can take back to September 11th um, around that like uh, is relevant for um, how we think about physical security um, on, on Capitol Hill and um and so there are real operational questions about what is necessary to keep um, members of Congress and the tens of thousands of other people who work on Capitol Hill, their staff, um, uh, their personal staff, committee staff, people who run the floor, people who work in the cafeteria, all that sort of thing. You got keep, keeping those people, um, keeping those people safe. Um, th- there are big operational questions um, around that. But you're absolutely right that there is also a um, sort of political question about what what do we value in terms of people being able to access the seat of our democratic government. Um, and um, I think uh, I, uh, 
I think that's why when the fence went up, uh, so again, for those of you who have not spent significant time um, uh, around the U.S. Capitol, um, after January 6th, um, uh, a significant amount of fencing um, went up around basically all of the um, components of uh, the legislative branch. So actually not just the U.S. Capitol itself, but extending uh, like a perimeter that extended pretty far out around the House and Senate office buildings, um, around some House office buildings that are actually like removed by a highway from uh, the main House office building. So a lot of physical infrastructure. And you saw a lot of pushback from one, people who um, who live in the city um, for whom Basically, like there were these enormous physical barriers plopped down in the middle of their neighborhoods, but then also people who care about the the idea that um, the U.S. the seat of the U.S. legislative branch is meant to be and should be accessible to um, to the public. There's this sort of extra uh, weird dimension of this debate that's happening. Um, because of COVID, um, where which has also um, restricted people's access to a lot of these spaces. And for much of the, the last 18 months, um, members of Congress were not actually really working in their physical office buildings anyway. Um, but I guess this is all to say that you're absolutely right, Scott, that there is a really thorny question here. Um, and uh, like so many other things that the current U.S. Congress is faced with making choices about. Um, there is a there's a a good faith version of this debate, and there's a bad faith version of this debate, and um, we have often found ourselves in the bad faith version, um, which has uh, been tantamount to House Republicans yelling at Nancy Pelosi for sort of um, like putting up a fence and keeping trying to keep their. Um, their constituents out of the of the U.S. Capitol, and so um, that's the that's the bad faith version. But there is a a, a real um, and there there are hard questions about what is the appropriate level of physical physical security um, over a longer period of time. I will say that one of the things that really struck me about the fencing, which came up during the January six Select Committee's first hearing. Um, was what the Capitol Police officers said about it. So I'm definitely, I live in D.C. I was in the camp of people who felt like we should really not have fencing. You know, it is some uh, important for people to be able to, you know, have access to the democratically elected legislature. Um, but one of the Capitol Police officers said something really, really interesting. He was describing his trauma um, from being in the Capitol on January 6th, having racist abuse screamed at him, he's black, um, you know, battling these hordes of people. And he was listing all of the things that continue to make him uneasy and upset him to this day. And one of the things that he listed was the fence going down. Um, and I found that really, really interesting, I think, to again, to connect it to 9-11, I think that you can read this sort of desire to put the fencing back up in a couple of ways. One is Capitol Police reacting a little bit like the U.S. government did after 9-11 and kind of saying, oh my God, this was a threat that we just did not even conceptualize and kind of overreacting in order to save face in some ways and sort of assure itself that this same thing won't happen again by sort of really, really slamming slamming up the the drawbridge. Um, and another way to look at it is as an expression of scarring 
Um, yeah, so I think this is um, this is a really important point, Quinta, and I think it's worth noting that, frankly, like to Scott's setup question about what the last year of um, life has been like in <clears throat> on Capitol Hill is that like January sixth was such a monumental, traumatic event for our democracy and for the thousands of people whose physical workplace safety was under attack on that day, that we, it's easy to forget that since then, we have had at least two other major breaches of um, the sort of capital security perimeter. One um, in the in the spring on the Senate side, um, and then one just a couple weeks ago where um, someone drove a pickup truck and parked outside the Library of Congress and was, um, I, I don't, uh, was sort of threatening to detonate explosives, and so again, like th- those in a in a world where we hadn't lived through January sixth, like those would rise to the level of should we allow cars to get as close to the U.S. Capitol as we do? Um, kind of level of of um, asking questions about that. So one one difference, obviously, between January sixth and and today and and next this weekend when this riot, when this rally, <laughs> I was going to say riot, when this rally is supposed to happen, hopefully it won't be a riot, but we shall see, um, is that, of course, uh, Trump is no longer president. And so my question, and I'm curious, sort of, Molly, if you have a sense of the political dynamics of this within Congress, does this allow the Trumpy Republicans to kind of chill out a little bit and quiet down in a way that they did not on January 6th, right? So, you know, January 6th, you have Mo Brooks, um, uh, at that rally um, that played some role in in the, the ensuing insurrection. You had the kind of ridiculous Josh Hawley stunt of, you know, showing support for the for the protesters soon to become rioters. I mean, you know, obviously you have Biden in the White House, and so maybe the Republicans want to take some shots at him. But the fact that Trump is no longer president, does that kind of allow Hawley and Brooks and, you know, maybe everyone to the to the left of Marjorie Taylor Greene to just kind of simmer down a little bit? Um, because they must themselves recognize that, you know, whatever they think the politics of it are, it's not good for even their own safety to have people potentially rioting and and um, violently entering the Capitol. So I think you are um, over, you're giving too much credit to large parts of the House Republican Conference. Um, I mean, I think like this is... I can't of- believe you'd accuse me of that. I am so offended. <laughs> Um, I mean, I think and like there's reporting that suggests that even if there aren't that many House Republicans who actually plan on attending this rally and and maybe ultimately none of them do, that many of them believe rightly or wrongly that what what their constituents believe is that what happened on January 6th was a was a peaceful protest and that the there are like that these the the people who participated in the insurrection are being unfairly treated by the legal system. Um, That's not every House Republican. Um, That's not maybe even most House Republicans. But I don't I I don't think that the fact that Trump is no longer president has really caused a simmering down of these forces within um, within the House Republican um, conference. You know, all this to me, it really drives home what I think is like a really tricky situation on this. Because the thing about this that makes me a little uncomfortable is kind of the ad hoc nature of it. And ad hoc's not fair, right? But the the fact that somebody in the government 
in the city and Congress in coordination with the executive branch. I suspect some combination of all three because they all have kind of a slice of the Capitol area. Um, is making a judgment call and saying, yeah, this particular fact pattern is dangerous. Other ones may or may not be. And like when you're talking about what is inherently, at least until it gets to a point where you're violating the law or you're committing violence, is still First Amendment protected activity that I like don't do not sympathize with, but fully defend the right of people to engage in. It just makes me uncomfortable. And like part of me is thinks that we would be better off if the powers that be just say, because we don't know what the different threats are that are going to be coming in, we need to set up a status quo that people feel secure with, no matter what the sort of activity that's going on outside. Now, maybe it's different for inaugurations, big events like that, that you can say like of a certain scale. Maybe there are like neutral lines you can draw like that, but you need those neutral lines. And like doing this on a much more ad hoc basis, again, something you can do in other environments, but when you're talking about public protesting, makes me really uncomfortable. That was true last summer when we were talking about, you know, Black Lives Matters protests and a lot of the reactions to that, that I think were wildly overhyped, but it makes me uncomfortable here as well. I think that last point is really important, Scott, which is that um, we have like wide ranging evidence that the powers that be do not treat and have not treated in our city and elsewhere all kinds of protest protest activity the same. Um, and so the the and maybe this is just kind of restating your point a little bit, but that kind of the posture that the city took towards the Black Lives Matter protests last summer versus the posture that the Capitol Police took in advance of January 6th are wildly different. Um, and I, I, I don't want to say that the answer is that they should um, – because I don't think that the answer is like they should be more restrictive in all cases, nor do I think the answer is they should be less restrictive in all cases. But it's just the 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 challenge or a challenge is that those we are currently not treating all kinds of public protests um, uh, equally, and that balancing that with also protecting again because this is you all know this is one of my sort of like things I talk about a lot, but like this is a place where people work and they go to do the work of the country. Um, and we can't, we cannot let that, a physical threat um, bestow people who are, who are just trying to do their jobs. There will be a, there will be some interesting first amendment lawsuits about this as well. I'm sure. I mean, if there continues to not be clear, transparent content, neutral standards for when Congress raises fences and what sort of security precautions it takes relative to different kinds of events and their political valence. I mean, some enterprising litigant will bring this kind of lawsuit. It might not win. I probably won't win, but it'll certainly be interesting. Well, we are almost at our time. But of course, before we leave the audience today, we have object lessons to share. Alan, why don't I go ahead and start with you? So my object lesson is a Really interesting article by Shirley Lee um, in The Atlantic. We'll put the link in the show notes called How Hollywood Sold Out to China. And it's all about how over the last 10, 15 years, as the Chinese movie market has grown massively and is at this point substantially larger than the U.S. movie market, um, Hollywood um, has had to quite sub has had to quite substantially alter um, the PR around its movies, often the contents of the movies themselves to cater to Chinese sensitivities and sensibilities. Um, some of that is, is just about the globalization of Hollywood, but some of it is also about the fact that uh, China is not interested in movies 
um, in which you know Taiwan is treated as a country or Tibet is shown sympathetically, um, so on and so on. Um, and it, so it's a truly interesting article. I, I like movies, so I find anything about kind of the internal political economy of Hollywood interesting. Um, but it's also just an interesting example of soft power and how we usually think of soft power as um, something you export, but it can also be something you have because of how you import. So because China is such a large import market for Hollywood in particular, um, this is a way in which that they can um, impose their own soft power in a way that is quite interesting and, you know, in, in some ways quite disturbing, both politically and, uh, and aesthetically. So good, good article. Highly recommend it. Quinto, I'm going to let you go next. In comparison, mine seems pretty frivolous. Um, I would like to talk about Kim Kardashian's dress at the Met Gala, which was a black shroud that covered all of her, including her face. Um, so if you look at the photos of her from the event, she just looks kind of like a shadow. Or maybe if someone like took the photo and cut out the figure of Kim Kardashian um, and put it over black paper. I thought it was awesome in particular because the theme of the event was supposed to be Americana. I have no idea if this outfit was a commentary on that, but I choose to believe it, it was, you know, a, a statement about the the bleak, dark, deep pessimism of our current national mood. I just think it's a power move. I mean, you, you have oh, to be was as awesome. famous, like you just have to be as famous as Kim Kardashian to go in a dress that completely obscures who you are knowing that the entire world will know exactly who you are. It, it is, she's kind of a genius. I'm very I just want to say this, a new rational security with millennials, we've worked in Nicki Minaj and Kim Kardashian in one episode. If we can get Olivia Rodrigo, we've got the trifecta. It's very exciting. Uh, uh, I'll go next and I'll let you bring up, bring up the uh, end of the show here, Molly. Um, for my object lesson this week, I wanted to share uh, something pretty amazing that I saw over the weekend. On September 11th, my wife and I and our son and our dog took a walk along the Anacostia. And I looked up and seen some, saw something that in my late 30-something uh, years here in Washington, D.C., uh, I've never seen before, which is a bald eagle uh, alit in a tree directly over us. Uh, an incredibly large animal, by the way, it is like slightly terrifying, particularly to my dog, who is not a very large dog and was very intimidated by the sudden <laughs> appearance of this literal raptor uh, over our heads. Um, but it was just exceptional. I had seen bald eagles in Alaska, other places, Pacific Northwest from a distance, never this close, never in you know my hometown, just a 10 minute drive from my house. And it led me to look into a little bit. And, and while the bald eagles had been, population had been decimated in the United States by the use of pesticides and a variety of environmental factors up until really the 1990s, um, there's been a graduate gradual effort to both restore the population and then reintroduce them into the D.C. area, um, including by bringing eagles over from the West and implanting them here in D.C. And evidently there's been like a couple that's been living above the D.C. Uh, police academy for the last decade that I did not heard about. Um, but now the population has bounced back really substantially to the point that they're becoming not uncommon sightings and appearances here in Washington, D.C., which I think is really exceptional, particularly around the Anacostia and Potomac, which have been the subject of a massive uh, cleaning effort for the last couple of decades. Um, so to me, I thought it was actually a pretty inspiring thing, uh, you know, as we reflect upon some of the terrible choices that uh, we've made as a country over the many years in many regards. It's a nice reminder that sometimes you can bounce back from those bad choices in certain ways, at least. Um, with that, Molly, I'll turn it over to you to close us out. 
Yeah. So um, despite the fact that this is my first time purposefully listening to Rational Security, um, I am a person who listens to podcasts. And so my object lesson is actually a new Molly, that's po- even, you know that that's even worse, <laughs> right? That's, but that's just, that's just even to more twist the knife. To, to be clear, I love podcasts. It's just this one kind of sucks, but I'll come on it, I guess. Are you suggesting you listen to podcasts that aren't about Congress and aren't rational security? Because <laughs> that's infuriating. <laughs> Congress that, podcasts are fine. <laughs> so my object lesson um, <laughs> is a um, a newish podcast um, about the um, Elizabeth Holmes trial, um, about which I am extremely interested. Um, they're actually, uh, uh, this one is called um, Bad Blood, The Final Chapter, and is hosted by um, John Carreyrou, who wrote um, a book about um, Theranos based on his reporting when he was at the Wall Street Journal that is also called um, Bad Blood. I highly recommend the podcast, even if you are not as intimately interested in all of the details of the Theranos saga as perhaps I am. It is interesting both because um, like what happened and sort of how uh, Elizabeth Holmes was capable of defrauding many, many people. There's, if you haven't read the book, there's a whole George Schultz uh, subplot that uh, brings it, frankly, firmly and into James the law- Mattis exactly firmly into the lawfare issue space. Um, but um, there's also in the in the podcast, there's just some really interesting stuff about you know how do you conduct a jury trial in the time of COVID um, and um, and that sort of thing. So I um, I do recommend it um, to um, to people looking to add more to their um, their podcast repertoire. Including Rational Security, which Including everyone Rational should subscribe Security. to, and which I'm sure, Molly, you've already subscribed to, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right into that podcast feed. That's what we like to hear. Well, with that ringing endorsement uh, for Molly, Molly Reynolds, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you all so much for joining us here today. Rational Security 2.0, like its forefather, is a production of Lawfare. You can still find our show page at lawfareblog.com, where you will find liner notes for this episode, including links to the articles and object lessons we've discussed. You can also purchase Rational Security swag at lawfarestore.com or go to patreon.com slash lawfare to become a Lawfare supporter for ad-free podcast feeds and other special benefits, including, and Molly, listen up because you will be particularly interested in this, including, as of, I believe, later today, a committed ad-free feed for rational security for people who just want to listen to rational security with no ads, but not the other lawfare podcasts. So Molly, put it on your list. Please do be sure to follow us on Twitter at, at, at RATL security. And wherever, wherever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review and hit that share button to pass it along to your loved ones. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. On behalf of my co-hosts, Quinta and Allen, and our special guests, Molly Reynolds, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 